Welcome to Food Friends. I'm Carrie. And I'm Sonia. We met in Los Angeles over 15 years ago as private chefs and haven't stopped talking about food since. We created Food Friends to share our stories and recipes with each other and you. We're so glad you're here. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Sonia. I am really excited to introduce our audience to Javier Lara. And it was so fun to get to introduce him to you. You know, he's been a friend of mine for pretty much since I moved back to Portland five years ago. I met him as a vendor at the local farmer's market. He and his partner, Margot, were selling mushrooms and some heirloom vegetables and other tinctures and herbs. We developed a really meaningful friendship. And I was able to witness sort of this incredible thing that's happened in their lives where they started out as farmers on a very small plot of land, which we visited, uh, Jonathan and I. But they always told me about this dream of creating a different version of farming of Javier comes from Mexico and wanted to grow like the vegetables and the three sisters, the squash, the corn, the beans that were part of his culture and his upbringing. And what they've created now since that tiny farm, they now are part of a larger set of nonprofits. One is called Capasas, and Capasas works with agricultural workers in Oregon. And it was created to serve as a way to defend and sustain and expand Oregon's immigrant and farm worker movement. And they have many different educational programs. And one of their programs that's connected to them is the Anawak Farm. And Javier is very involved in that. But of course, it's it's a community venture, but it is many, many acres of land. And as a community, they're growing these three sisters and other herbs and produce. And they're teaching young people how to grow these incredible ingredients. And they're also cooking the ingredients and having shared meals. I've had the fortune of being on the land and being at these meals and witnessing this flourishing, thriving community. But also Javier is just an incredible source of wisdom and and yeah, it was just so special to have this conversation together. Well, I just want to echo the what you just said, which is it was a very special conversation for me to be a part of. And you and I have talked about Javier for many years and you've shared how moving it is to have met him and to be to watch his progression, his family's progression to the space that they're currently farming on. And speaking with him for this conversation, I feel like I could just listen to him talk about food and farming for days and days on end. It was a really meaningful conversation to be a part of. Yeah, and I think it's a departure from some of our other episodes, Like, yes. and I welcome that. There are still recipes, and there are still laughs. Yes. So I just want to like <laughs> let our our listeners know that there are still going to be you know beautiful stories and recipes, and he's very funny. There's a couple of parts where I'm still cracking up about him, but we also wanted to make an acknowledgement that we experienced some technical difficulties with my computer computer at the end of this. Right? Yeah. It's so Carrie's microphone basically cut out towards <laughs> the last quarter of the interview. So it will sound like I'm the only one in the room. Carrie was there listening, but unfortunately <laughs> couldn't speak. So just know that her presence was there and that we had a little bit of a snafu. But again, most of the interview, everything went off great. And also the very end of our recording also got deleted, didn't record, didn't save. So these things happen. We roll at the punches, yeah. but the bulk of everything that we talked about as a group, as the three of us is all here and we can't wait for you to listen. You know, without further ado, listen on to this conversation with Javier Lara. Hi. 
Hi. Carrie, I'm so excited to introduce you to my friend, someone who's taught me so much, Javier. Javier, and I'm so excited to introduce you to also my friend, Carrie. <laughs> so it's my pleasure to introduce you to each other. Javier, it's so nice to meet you, and we're really excited to chat with you today. I've heard a lot about you and about your farm, and I'm really excited to hear about it from you. Nice to meet you, Carrie, and, and thank you for the invitation, Sonia. I'm excited to share also. Uh, this is something that I, I think I deeply share with Sonia, the cooking aspect of uh, giving our spark, you know, our gift, you know, from a, from the different cultures that we come from. And I think it's so unique that food, I mean, I met her on the farmer's market through herbs and, and things that I was growing. And so I'm really excited to, to meet you and to share this space. Thank you. So, you know, I started going to the farmer's market as soon as I moved back to Portland and I would just get sucked into Javier, Stan Javier and his partner, Margot were always there and they had such warmth and kindness and also the most beautiful mushrooms, the most beautiful herbs, often kind of heirloom squashes or other things they were growing. And yeah, I would always stop to talk and that's how we developed a friendship. But Javier, we really want to introduce you to our listeners and I'd love to start at the beginning a little bit, like if you could share where you're from and also how you ended up here in Oregon. Yeah, I'm from the Nahuatl community from the state of Guerrero, what is known now as Guerrero, Mexico. Uh, the Nahuas are very, very broad and, and what is known now as Mexico. You find us in the state of Mexico, Puebla, the state of Veracruz, the state of Guerrero, and even even all the way down to El Salvador, Central America. So you know where that I think is the biggest, the second uh, most spoken language after Spanish. So it, it's a huge ethnic group. And you know when I migrated, I started in Mexico. I moved to to bigger cities. I come from a very small community, and I started to move towards towards the U.S. And eventually, I literally crossed the border and, and became labor force, quote-unquote, when it comes to all the agriculture Northwest Corridor. So I started in California with the asparagus, strawberries. You will move on to grapes, even peaches, keep moving northern, cherries and Staten, in Stockton, I'm sorry. And I will end up in Yakima and with the apple harvest. And at the very, very end of the season, I will stop in Oregon to do the Christmas trees. So as you see, you follow the, you know, every crop that is available, you follow as a labor force. And and that's what literally brought me to Oregon, the Christmas trees. You work hard for a season, you know, it can last from, like asparagus is a long season, can last up to three months. Strawberries is super, super short. And same thing with uh, peaches is super short. But it was the first time that someone offered me a permanent job in Oregon in the Christmas trees farm industry this farmer asked me would you like to work for me the whole season the whole year from uh, planting preparing the soil and growing the christmas trees and all the way up to harvest you know so that's how i end up in oregon wow amazing it's so cool to imagine you just sort of moving with each crop as you kind of move up the coast how did you first become a farmer yourself and start growing food yourself there's you know there's a deep relationship with with mother earth you know as as a native of this continent uh and that's because we have a very ancient relationship with agriculture you know what is now known as agriculture you know in fact that's how our communities settled and we became amazing cultures you know amazing civilizations in, in the world so that's because agriculture i mean we we give so much to the world by, you know, evolving with the specific grasses and what's now known as corn, right? 
and so many things that I can, I'll be happy to share with all of you. So in a way, you know, we have by generically, we are farmers, you know, we are as a civilization, as a mother culture, civil, civil, you know, civilization where a lot of cultures flower out of those, we have that relationship. So when I came to the U.S., you know, of course, I was just two hands in the back, you know, just like you see us in hotels, cleaning the beds, the sheets, just like you see us in the restaurants, cleaning the dishes. I mean, we're not the waitress. You know, we are way on the back. We are not the, the receptors in the, in the hotels. We are, you know, the the labor force, right? So that's how I became once I entered into the U.S. But I had all this richness, all this amazing culture, and I was really proud. So I always thought there is a lot more than this. I mean, I'm happy to do the work when I came in because that's all I knew. And most of my peers as farm workers, that's how we were surviving. I never really engaged with the dominant culture. You know, I was just always moving in cohorts of farmers, depending on transportation and other farmers or the farm workers, I'm sorry. So we always move in blocks to survive. So I knew that was my life when I first came to the U.S., but I again, I knew there was something more than that because, I mean, I'm Nahuatl, and there's so much richness as being a Nahuatl person. There's so much history, there's so much richness, so much culture, so much tradition. And, of course, when I realized that, that it had to do with Mother Earth, and what comes out of Mother Earth and that relationship, I was like, well, I just need to go back to that relationship that, that my grandmother had, that my mom had. Even though in Mexico we didn't own land, we still practice that relationship with the traditional harvests of traditional seasons that depend on the rain, that it give you the abundance of food, right? So I always, ex I was always exposed to that reality, even though, again, we, we, we were not farmers, so, but we, my grandmother knew that it was ceremony time because the corn is ready to be harvested. So we let's go to the cornfield, uh, do the ceremony, and it, it was always through food. So by bringing back those memories, I said, well, it is time to do it here, right? And that's how I started to farm everything that's related to my culture. And not just my culture, but everything that is related to native cultures of this continent. So again, you know, it was it was just, you know, it was always beautiful to go back and, and not just, again, my relationship with my plants, other plants from the different ethnic groups, ethnic groups of this continent. So I, I was always looking for if the Nawas love this specific herb or this specific plant, you know, what do the Zapotec love? And what do the Mixtec, what the Otomi, what the Purepechas, you know, what the Navajos, the Hopis, what do they love, right? And it was just beautiful to find out that we just rotating and almost under under the same core plants core foods and yeah there's one another one here that is unique from the region because of course it's, it's you know the microclimates that we have but at the same time it was really amazing to find out that we almost you know come from the same source in a way so in that ancestral relationship with the same plants it's there it's, it's there from all the different ethnic groups so that's how i started to uh, reconnect with the plants and that ancestral relationship so it was the impetus to reconnect to lineage through starting to grow these central core plants that were significant to your indigenous community, but as well as many others of the continent. Yeah. If you go all the way to the south with the Mapuche people, you know, all the way down to Argentina, they have a very unique relationship with specific corn. If you go all the way down, all the way to New York, you know, with the Mohawk community, they have a very unique relationship with the corn. That's something that is really core among us 
no matter if you are on the, the tip of the northern part of the continent or the tip of the south part of the continent. Corn is like our grain, you know, our is our essence of, you know, as a civilization or as a social, you know, tribal social community gathering in one spot. That's that's what it made us settle in a place, right? And we share that. And the corn, just like I'm doing it right now with my kids, you know, they're growing in Oregon, they're growing in Salem, Oregon. They have this unique relationship with this land but they also have the unique relationship with corn now so even though the corn maybe that i grew up with the specific races of corn that we have and in, in the region where i grew up is different but it can adapt to oregon or it has a variant that it can adapt to oregon but it's still corn can you tell us a little bit more i know that you're growing the three sisters and i don't know that all of our listeners even know about the three sisters can you tell us a little bit about the importance of those plants to you and to your communities. Yeah, I mean, what's really amazing for us is like, and it's sadly, I will say this two parts of the story. It's amazing because Three Sisters is like this staple for us. Like you come up with so many dishes just out of Three Sisters. Three Sisters basically is the corn, the squash, and the beans. And then also for us, it's called milpa. If you go to the Mayas, it's called cool. So it has a different names, but it's exactly the same concept. It's the relationship of these three plants that are that are mutually supporting each other in the season, right? So each plant has a job in, in, you know, to do, to share the responsibility, quote unquote, with Mother Earth and in the, in the ecosystem of growing together. But also for us, it's, it has given us so much. And not just biology speaking, you know, the, the nutrients and the minerals and the, and the perfect diet that we have through those three sisters, but also the energy, you know, like corn has been taken in so many different ways. And to give you an example to your audience of how amazing this relationship is, just from corn itself, you can make 2,400 dishes just from the corn. Wow. Most of us only know like the very, very basic relationship of corn, which is like the tortilla, right? Maybe maybe tamales is really common now in the U.S. But that's what most of the of the U.S. society knows, you know, this. and then, But they don't know how rich and how deep corn is when it comes to the table, the center of the family, you know, eating together and the festivity behind. You know, uh, just to give you an example, I grew up in which I mentioned to you, my grandmother, where when it was time for harvest, it was a very, there was a very unique dish that you have to offer it to the corn, you know, to the mother earth that of course it was related, you know, it was cooked with corn, but it was given back to the cornfield. And then we also enjoy it. We, we eat it as a festivity. And it was just an amazing experience because she knew that it was time for harvest season. Just bring the container, bring the, the, the few things that are not in the field right now. Then everything else is in the field. And we will literally cook it in the field. You know, we will find three stones, make the firewood, harvest, cook it in the field, and then have the feast together. So having that memory and knowing that the sacredness of this specific dish it was an honor to grow with it. It was an honor to receive it as, as a young as a young child. But sadly, the other side of the story is most of the people now, they only know very few things about corn. And even more sad, they only knew only maybe three corns. 
even though we have so many races of corn, right? And each corn is so unique for a specific dish, for a specific tradition, but we are falling in the hole of why corn is for everything. And that's because that's all I know. Javier, can you tell us the name of the dish that your that your grandmother would make out in the field? And then my follow-up question to that is, do you now do that with your children and the corn that you're growing in Oregon? Yeah, that dish is called chilatequile. Chilatequile, no, no, you know, I don't just do it. I mean, I do it for ceremonial encounters at the farm. And I also, I try to bring as much as dishes traditional dishes that are possible, right? That's what is inspiring to to do in life, coming from, again, from such a powerful culture. It's like, you can't let it die. You can't let the, the food industry vanish and make this disappear. It's almost like once you know it, it's almost like, a, like an internal moral ethics that's like, you can't let this make you disappear. Even the organic industry that is so common in Portland or so common in cities, you know. It's just another industry that is making you eat specific vegetables, specific things, but it's an industry. And eventually that's all you're going to eat and it, yes, it's healthy, but it's an industry. For us, it's not. There's so many wild herbs that grow with the milpa, with the three sisters. And those wild herbs, a lot of a lot of people in these cultures, even in Mexico, they call them weeds. So it's very interesting because for us, you know the benefits of this specific you know native plants to grow in relationship with the three sisters but if you want to go deeper like if you are an intellectual person and you want to find out more you will learn that those specific weeds you can go to the store and buy a bundle of spinach or you can go to the farmer's market and they will sell you a bundle of spinach and then this wild weed it has three times the iron that the spinach or it has like three times the omega-3 that the fish oil has it is a wild weed right and you don't have to buy it at the farmer's market or you don't have to buy it at, at, the, at the fancy store right that's something again that it feels amazing when you share with the youth when you share with your kids like there's a lot more than what you see. Can you tell us the name of those weeds? Like, because also I think, you know, a number of our listeners are here in the Northwest. They're all over the country and the world, frankly, but it's very possible these quote unquote weeds grow near all of us. I'm curious if you can share some that you think people overlook. I'll be happy to not just share new names. I'll be happy to share your amazing poster I have in front of me. Please. So, so in Spanish, they're called them quelites, which is a wild herb. Right? It's a family, anything that is wild that grows in nature. So there's, as you can see, it's not just herb, but it's also some trees. Some of them is the agave flower. Some of them, of course, are like very common. You even find them like the squash blossoms, right? That's a kelite for us. The leaves of the purple or green amaranth. I'm curious about the specific one that's like an alternative to spinach. What is this very common green that we're really overlooking that's available right outside our door maybe? Yeah, that one is this one right here. Um, it's called kelite ceniso. It grows everywhere. This has a lot more benefits than the spinach does for, does for you. I just looked it up. It's called pot herb. Pot okay. herb. Yeah, we can show a, a picture of it. Again, we'll link to all of this, but it is a generic name. Javier, I think what's really brilliant about the sisters is that indigenous cultures have known about this relationship between these three plants for thousands of years. And I think fast forwarding to like the, the moment of time that we are currently in, there's a lot of now scientific discussion and scientific evidence that supports everything that you're 
you're saying and this idea that you're expressing about biodiversity that yes, we're talking about corn and squash and beans, but what you're also offering is that the kelites, right? These wild herbs that grow alongside of the sisters. And these are herbs that people have also been eating for millennia and sustaining cultures. There's an herb that I have learned from our farmer's market called purslane, and it's it's considered a weed as well. But one of the things that I learned about it is that it's incredibly high in omega-3s, which is something that science likes to talk about a lot right now because it's very healthy. And mm. so are you growing kelites? In Oregon, are they similar to the ones that were growing around your three sisters in Mexico? Or are you you're just notice are you noticing them similar or different or the same? They're very similar. And I and I share with you what you the one you just mentioned, it's right here. <laughs> right. So they're so similar. Again, and then that's one of the beautiful things that I always tell the the people that I encounter in the adventure of growing food. For us, you know, you need to understand that, you know, every mountain has an honor. You know, someone owns the mountain. Someone owns the hill. Someone owns the lake, the river. But when I say someone, I mean someone above us. You know, and it literally has an honor. So for that reason, you always have to uh, create a relationship with that honor of that place and everything that is there, because everything that is there is beneficial to us, right? So it has been for so many years. There's so many generations, but that is the part we are losing, you know, the scientist doesn't teach you about. And for us, it's like, it cannot just be, you know, 20 by 20 is a square and it's purple because I prove it that it's purple. No, you know, it is an amazing mystery and you don't have to know the mystery because that's, that's what it makes it so beautiful. Right. And one of the things that are so powerful for me is that all the mountains have an honor, not just where I grew up, even here in Oregon. So why don't you go and start with the relationship with that honor of that mountain? And they will show you what's so edible and what is so amazing for you, you know, for your body and, and, and then for you, you know, your community and your family. And that's to me, that is the biggest secret, because if you don't understand the secret, then what is the point? Right. Just just keep dancing your journey. Go ahead. Good luck. You know. It's not, we're not in the same page, right? We respect that, but it's okay. It's, it's beautiful in, in your own ways. But I want to keep honoring what is amazing to us. Can I clarify just so I understand what you're saying? You're talking about like the owner, the the spiritual or higher force of any specific part of land or part of the world in a mountain, a hill, a lake, a river, whatever, the energetic force of that place. And that that owner, that whatever that comprises of, is it also the teacher? It's also yeah. showing you what is what you can eat, what you can, how you can be in relationship with the land, how you can honor the land, and also how you can be nourished from the land. Is that fair to say? It, it is fair in the sense that you know the it protects whatever grows there, you know, and it's there for you if you grab it or you encounter it with that respect and with that humbleness, right? Because we know we have the ability to just pick, pick, pull, 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 and then eventually you run out of that source, you know, and then you're, you're done. Now you need to survive or you need to find other ways to survive. But if you approach it in a different way, you know, even the animals will teach you 
you know what is good to eat and what is not and if you know that even the water they have they have plants for us you know under the water so there's always life that it can be shared with us as a way of food as a source of food so i feel like the the fact that the beauty of growing those plants in that mountain is because it's been protected and it, and it has some other source greater than us that is just there for us protecting it and if you want to come over and, and learn it and and you know take it and use it it has to be a, a, a some kind of reciprocity from our behalf towards the place and from that place towards us. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, the I need, the reciprocity of life. I just want to share that, you know, I've had the incredible privilege of being able to eat food that you've made and also to eat food that was made by other people in your community in very traditional kitchens with the three sisters i've been i've come to a dinner where you utilize corn in many different ways with an incredible porridge with a fermented beverage with with so much comforting complex food i'd love to hear a little bit more about what you cook with the ingredients you grow like what is your go-to meal that you're feeding your friends your family if you could describe it to us yeah for us in, in my case you know in particular peppers is like you know it's a core right but also of course peppers because uh there's so we have so many different types of peppers but at the same time you know the complexity of the of their flavors is so also amazingly unique and of course when you mix it with three sisters and it depends on the stage of where the three sisters are the mixing of them is just it's just amazing and also the color that you create in the food depends on what pepper you add also really magical in that sense so peppers and three sisters together are are key for me when it comes to cooking and once three sisters give you the the ultimate food in this case the corn the dry corn masorca the dry corn it goes well because then you can make all, a lot of other things yes so you're cooking peppers what are you making with your squash what are you making with your beans so one simple recipe and I'll be happy to share with you send it to you so you can share it with your audience but um one that's really unique very unique because it's a very unique flavor i mean i want to use i want to share with you something that you're not used to it that i can definitely give you the experience either you hate it or love it that will be up to the individual but it's very unique and that is the guts of the squash so you know you harvest a squash that is fully ripe i prefer the green squash the darker the darker the better right and all you need on this recipe is just the guts of one squash the gut the guts you mean the gut like the inside not of the squash the meat, not okay. the meat you know you i know most of you enjoy the meat again <laughs> the guts and the seeds that's all you want right and then you you got it you got to cook it and kind of like boil it you know with a little water cook it and once it's cooked you got to blend it uh, and then you put it back on the cooking process and then you're going to use guajillo pepper or if you don't have any access to guajillo peppers you can use new mexico peppers those long thin skin peppers is the key and then you you want to put them in warm water so they can they can get soft and then you can also use like a dozen of tomatillos green tomatillos you remove the husk you wash them and you also blend them with the peppers once once the peppers are soft so you remove the tail of the pepper and then you blend the whole thing together with the tomatillo and then you add it into the guts of the squash that you already blended and salt based on the new taste and let the puppy cook, and it's amazing. Is that like a, a stew? It's, it's a 
soup. A soup, because all the nutrients are in those seeds, right? And are they also in that stringy material that's the inside of the squash that everyone throws out? And the seeds are one of the most beneficial to you, more than the meat. So That sounds incredible. And is that something you are regularly making? Again, just for special occasions. (laughs) So I do, though. I grew up with that, and it's an amazing dish to to try. Javier, can you tell us the name of that dish? This one is called ayomole. Ayomole. What's really unique about this dish, we always eat it with a bug, with an insect. So there's a bug that grows that is very in abundance when the three sisters are really ripe and we're harvesting. It's really black and we call them shumilines, shumilines, but you harvest them, you collect them, and when you are ready to eat this dish, you chew the head of the bag and you suck whatever is inside of the bag. And it's so spicy, you know, it's like horseradish for us. It's Uh just your brain and it goes it's you can hardly breathe for a little, a little moment wait the bug you're, you're saying the bug is spicy. the bug has a spot some kind of chemical in it that is so opens your brain opens your sinuses wow. <laughs> and your mind wow. and is that bug here in oregon too i have never seen it in oregon myself but it will be amazing if they're in oregon you know I mean, what you're describing is kind of like eating crawfish. Well, in places like Louisiana, in the Cajun culture, they have crawfish boils and you break the crawfish and you suck the head, which is where a lot of flavor is. And then you eat the meat off of the tail. That's what came to mind when you were describing eating this bug. <laughs> it might be, yeah. I mean, the concept sounds very similar. It's one of the things to me that I love to do when I go to Mexico, especially with my young generation, how grows up they get you know because they're still available but they, that relationship it's uh, it's beautiful but at the same time it's intimidated if you're growing up in contemporary times with things like that are so so unique but to me it's amazing but it because it does give you and you can feel it right away when you combine this two eating the you know the soup and the insect at the same time and it made me think Javier because I don't think many people even know anything beyond that you can roast the seeds you know if anything when people got a squash, they typically, you know, throw it out or compost it. Maybe they take the time to wash the seeds and roast them. Is there any other recipe, whether it's squash or corn or or uh, beans, that you feel like people don't know about, that it's like underutilizing that plant? I want to share the corn, squash, and beans, the kernels of the corn, the seeds of the squash, and the bean itself. All the three of them, you can roast them. You know, once they're dry, you put them and you dry them. Once they're dry, you roast them, get a a, a heat pot going, you know, a pan, and then just put them on the surface. The key is you always have to move them. They have to be in motion all the time under the heat. And what is really amazing is the beans, because most people only know the beans, you boil them, and that's how you cook them. For us, it's like, no, you roasted them, and then you grain them, and then you have your bean flour. And then you can make amazing beans anytime by just adding warm water. Same thing. It's like dehydrated beans almost. So you could, can you use it as both a bean that you rehydrate, but also as a flour for something? I never had them, you know, like once I roasted them, I storage them. And if I want to eat them, just boil them with water. I have never done that, but I do have, I always meal them. You know, we always put them and make them flour and then cook it with specific herbs for specific flavors. You know, avocado leaves are amazing with beans. A simple recipe, you know, once you roast them, you grain it and then you add avocado and it's amazing salt to the taste. And that is an amazing beans you're not going to have in any Mexican restaurant. By avocado leaves, you just mean a leaf off of an avocado tree. Yep. It Can it be a fresh leaf or does it need to be a dried leaf or it can be either? 
the dry ones are stronger. The fresh ones are lower flavors. You can add a little more, but it gives you the same outcome. I remember you made that for us one time, uh, beans cooked with avocado leaf. It's an incredible flavor. And you can find dried avocado leaves, right? If you go to a Mexican market. You can find them in Mexican markets dry in some, now they're the, you know, they're, they're specifically in the areas where our population is, is growing. You can find them fresh too. Another trick that I want to share with you is that you can also grain the avocado leaves and powder and just put them on your frijoles, you know, your beans. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Dry them and make a, a spice powder and then sprinkle it on as you would cumin or coriander exactly. or chili powder. Wow. It also makes me think about cooking with fig leaves. Like a lot of people don't know that you can dry fig leaves and also flavor. Like a, a, you could make an ice cream that's flavored with fig leaf and it's very delicious. Yeah. Mm, nice. Javier, I'm, I'm curious, where do you source your seed? Where did the seeds, the first seeds that you started to grow in Oregon, where did they come from? Did you go to Mexico and bring them back or did you find some someone in Oregon that you were working with, where did your seeds come from? You know, you, you get surprised and this is, this is going to make you laugh, but we're going to make you cry either way. <laughs> I thought in Mexico, well, you should be able to find any seed because a lot of those plants are native from the region of the world, right? This, the region of this continent. And I was kind of naive, you know, one of my first approaches was, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to check out how many seed stores we have and available in, in what is known now as Mexico. And I'm going to order, you know, my seeds and get them ready and start growing all my amazing plants that I have relationship with. None. There's no such a thing. Here in the U.S., it's a huge industry of our native seeds. I mean, people hunt for this. And they make a lot of profit out of it. They know what's going on in that sense. And they make an amazing profit out of out of our native plants. So there's a lot of seed providers who have our native plants growing. Because they, and just to give some context, because I don't think everyone knows who's listening, but what you're talking about too is the patent, patenting of seeds, meaning so a big, uh, in a big, corporation can get a seed and then decide to patent it in America, which means they control and own the rights to it. Is this what you're speaking to? It, it can be taken to that level, especially, I want to give you an example that a lot of people are familiar with. Dahlias come from this continent and this our one of our fresh foods also, you know, just like for a lot of uh, native of this Oregon, you know, Kamas and also Washington, Kamas is, is one of their, their fresh foods, right? So they wait for the Kamas season to you know, for the winter to come and they collect the roots and thus they make powder out of it. They make flour out of it as a food for the winter. Dahlias is the same thing for us, right? So it's our fresh food. But dahlias is so beautiful that the colonial, during the colonial period, it was shipped all over the world. And now people make so much money out of dahlias because once they may, they create their own hybrid, it becomes theirs. It's their property. And if you want it, once the pattern uh, expires, I think it's about 10 years, then they still have their name, right? Or their last name is theirs. And then you got to pay for that beautiful flower. It's exactly the same thing. Yeah. It's a, it's a system of ownership of seeds. If they create their hybrids out of our native herb right, or native plant, they can become owners of that. Like the first generation of that, of that native plants, I think it's free of culture, probably it's free of exploitation. I mean, they can exploit it as much as they want, but uh, once they create their own hybrid out of that plant, then 
it becomes theirs. I see. So we back to Carrie's questions too, like the sourcing of the seeds. So you're up against, you can't exactly order every seed you want because of the expense or complication of getting it. Is that correct? Well, it's expensive. Once there is sources, an example, I'm going to give you Papaloquelite. It's, it's, it's a very amazing plant for us, especially for cooking, but we love the flavor of the plant by itself. You just literally pull the leaves and eat it. Maybe a piece of cheese on the side, and then you bring this plant next to you and the plate, and you just enjoy it and chew it together and enjoy the mix and the complexity of the flavors of this plant. So papaloquelite, it's really hard to grow in Oregon, and to manage to get seeds is a challenge, right? But the industry of seeds, they have created their... Um, microclimate so they can make the plant produce seeds but like 10 seeds of that plant is like about seven dollars right and again if you want to grow on a bigger scale it's a lot of money you know it's a lot of money so but then to make you give you seeds it's a challenge especially if you're not an expert on growing vegetables definitely you're going to depend on that industry if you want to keep growing it so there's a lot of them available but some of the other ones that are so unique uh like to give you an example right now i'm working on um uh, what is it called phytosanitary permit from USDA because I want to bring a specific specific seeds. Ironically, again, I couldn't find them in Mexico, but they have them all in Germany. So I'm going to, I need to order them from Germany and, but it's a whole process to do it. Because it's you hard. have to get the approval. You can't just bring in any seed you want from another country. There's a whole process. Exactly. But, and then what's ironic to me is that we have to go to a foreign country to get our own traditional <laughs> ancestral uh, plants, you know? Javier, I think I have maybe like a more basic question and I'll just make it really specific too which is how many varieties of corn do you grow there's 60 64 races of corn that I would I dream to have about the farm we tried to grow 24 at the beginning of the project and the goal or the challenge is of course to adapt them to Oregon to the altitude to the season to the soil and out of those 24 only seven produce corn for seeds right so we eliminated the other ones and we and we accepted that they didn't want to they didn't want to dance with us so we said okay we kept the seven <laughs> so so we have seven growing right now, uh, and seven is plenty to do what we want to do here, to do all the dishes, traditional dishes that we want to share with the youth, with the community that, that we have a relationship with. And what's unique about you, your question, just to add you a little more, is that the corn, some of them are just for very deep dishes, but some of them are also just for ceremonies. You don't do anything with other than ceremonies. It's that amazing balance that we managed to grow here and now able to collect the seeds. That's the reciprocity that you speak to. Mm-hmm. And, and Javier, can you in your own words tell us a little bit more about Anawak, about your farm, about what you're doing for your community and for the youth? I try to focus more on the personal approach. I feel like Anawak, Anawak is, is an honor for me to be part of it, but I feel more like if I want to go deep with Anawak, I feel like it would be amazing to hear from, from the team and other people involved. But basically the concept of Anawak is a project under Capacity Leadership Institute, which is based in Woodburn, Oregon. And Anawak is a program under the programs of Capacity passes but anawak itself it has a lot of anawak comes from the Nahuatl language it means surrounded by water basically the project itself is we want to have a space where we can keep being Zapotecs, Nahuas, Mixtecs, natives, and have our relationship going for real. Like a land where I can, nobody wants to judge me. Nobody wants to say, oh, oh you can't grow those weeds here. You know, this is going to overtake whatever. Oh, that's not how we grow. We want it to be who we are. 
And so Anahuac basically bought 60 acres in Tuner, Oregon. And all the corns that I shared with you, the story about the corns, we are adopting this corn and in this land and this 60 acres and also i also share with you that all the traditional herbs we have amazing variety of herbs growing right now in anahuac and not just for uh, the culinary arts of the gastronomy aspect of our cultures but also for healing so there's a lot of herbalism for traditional healing so you know every season and during the dormant of the season uh, we have relationship with youth, the Salem Kaiser School District. We also have partnership relationship, amazing relationship with other nonprofits who are sister organizations who bring families, you know, full families. You know, sometimes you get little kids from they cannot even walk yet all the way to teenagers. And everything that I share with you, they learn it by exposing themselves to it. So the calites that I mentioned to you that, you know, we talk about it, we introduce them a few plants, and then we ask them to go and harvest to look, recognize them among all the other plants and then come with a bundle and whatever bundle you have in your hands that's your plate that's how much you're going to eat so like some kids come with only one little branch well you need to go back because you're going to start we still have three hours to go in the workshop so they go back and come up with a huge bundle so again you know expose them by having a direct relationship with the plants we just kind of guide them i think that's the beauty of the project is we want to create those memories for them so they can remember just just like i did growing up with my grandmother you know from your perspective how is the community responding to this project that you're all a part of? The response is amazing in the sense of there's a lot of adults who they cannot believe there's a place like this and they never thought they will see something like this because the only place they saw is growing up where they come from. And that even a good example is just how the, the three sisters grow together. Like if you go to any cornfield, it's so perfect and every all the plants are so even and when the youth came, one youth a young man came in and says, why Wow, I keep looking the the corn and it is so wow and it's so there's so many things going on you know and that's how my grandparents grew three sisters you know that image is by itself it gives so much to this young man right the response with the adults is amazing with the kids you have a very unique balance because some of them really taking it in some of them of course we feel like there's so many other forces pushing against this project naturally not intentionally it's just happening technology is one of them the lack of concentration is another one. The fact that this is so foreign to them, even though it's so generically connected. And then the other part is so sleep that it's it's a it's a long journey to wake it up to wake it up inside of them but it's there and we know it's it's a beautiful journey ahead of us also what makes it a very inspiring to keep going amazing yeah javier i have to say that coming to your land i was there you know in the spring for your ceremony prior to planting seeds you did a ceremony in may where people were invited to bring offerings and it was extraordinary i having known you when you were on a very small piece of land when i visited you and margo on your small piece of land in wine country where you were growing beautiful mushrooms to then seeing you and margo and this incredible thriving community of it seemed like hundreds of people, not just participating in ceremony, but then sharing a meal together, prepared with traditional foods, traditional ingredients, and the enjoyment. It was very moving for me. Thank you, Sonia. I, th I think it's, you know, we talk about reciprocity, you know, I think when you honor the owners of the camp in English, you know, a lot of the native brothers and sisters said, honor the honor of the camp. Uh, you know that you have a good intention. You do it in a good way. If something happens, you know, something's, something is, it comes back to you in a good way as well. And that also is just not just 
the beauty of growing so much food, but also the good people that comes, you know, not a bad intention, you know, because in this culture, it's hard to find those people. They always want something. They always want something. And they're looking for business. They're looking for something. It's, so it's always great to see a ceremony or a harvest together moment or a meal making together with a good intention and people from all over, from many directions, you know. To me, that is what the ceremony is. They're representing their own culture, their own traditions, but they come and enjoy your tradition and your culture, your relationship with your plants. And I think that's what you saw and that's what you've been seeing. And that's why we care for each other. And we, you know, like Margot was telling me this morning, oh, Sonia just, just posted, she has a book. I want to buy it. I want to buy it. You know, I said, I want to buy it too. <laughs> I also want to have a copy too. You know? So again, it is that reciprocity. That's reciprocity. Yeah. yeah. It meant so much. In fact, in Margot's uh, note that she wrote me when she ordered her book, she talked about dried sorrel and connecting to her Armenian roots and, and her lineage and her traditional dishes. And, you know, just the other day I made a soup with sorrel with a, because sorrel is also an important green in, in my tradition. I, there are just so many ways we're interconnected. And yeah. I, I'm so grateful for, for our relationship over these years. I've learned so much from both of you and from your community. And before we wrap up, if there's anything we haven't asked you or that you feel that is important to share on this topic. I, you know, I just want to invite you audience that if you remove the economical aspect of the interest of the individual, you know, the ego of, of wanting something, if you pay attention, what makes us move as a culture and, re and establish a relationship with another culture, what's that specific trait related to food and basic needs, like, you know, cover yourself. But food, it was fundamental. And I feel not just in one continent like America, not not this just this continent, but every, you know, Asian continent, the European continent, food and condiments is just that inter-tribal, inter-cultural relationship. If you take it to the humanistic approach, and I, I think that's what it should be about, you know, and like we are here from all over the world. We're here in this, in the U.S. now. And, you know, like you come to the farm, right? I Even I remember having this amazing seafood dish in your home that you prepared for us. So, but it was just that beauty of let's enjoy this meal together that I want to cook it with through my hands and from my heart and whatever I put in it and let's enjoy it, right? It's an amazing step towards to that simplicity, but at the same time, you know, so rich and so amazing for the soul. And I feel like that invitation, you know, just go and find whatever cultures next to you and say, hey, you know, well, it's an amazing in your culture that I can learn and put it in my meals, you know, start adding it into my in my kitchen, you know, for my family to enjoy. Like Soro, you mentioned Soro and the amazing relationship with the Armenian culture. For us, it's a shoshoko, which is exactly the same. And we use it for green mole, you know, and then you just share that it's also so so into your culture. So that's a really good example of how much we have in common. And we come from so far away from three cultures so far apart. But here we are in Oregon talking about Soro with and I want to share this dish you know it's uh I could really cry um and I just like that's why we started this podcast is Carrie and I come from very different places and very different backgrounds and we understand that a friendship created between food is a sacred bond when you cook for someone and you nourish them and you tell a story of your lineage you get to know each other in a different way than let's say if you just go to the coffee shop, right? The way you explain that, I know it, it touches both me and Carrie so deeply. So yeah, I know I can confidently speak for Carrie and say we're just so grateful for your time, for the work you and all of your community does, and for you to share these stories and these recipes is very meaningful to us. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sonia, for the invitation. 
So as we mentioned at the start of this episode, we had a little bit of a technical difficulty and the very end of this episode got cut off, which is why none of us formally said goodbye to each other. (laughs) Uh, So we're just popping back in to let you know that's what happened, but it was an incredible conversation. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Thank you. And thank you for sticking with us to the very end. Thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you in general to all our listeners. As always, we love hearing from you. So if you have anything to share, please get in touch. And Carrie, I can't wait to see you again soon. Same, same. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being our food friend. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, leave us a review, and share this episode with friends. We love hearing from you. So follow us on Instagram or drop us a line at foodfriendspodcast.com. Yes, we'd love to hear from you and your food friends. Happy cooking and eating.